Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your host for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Chico Fernandez, and he'll be answering your most important questions on snook on the hook. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Chico a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of the show where it says, click here to ask Chico your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Chico Fernandez about one of his favorite fish, the snook. New from Winston Rod for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate and delicate presentation while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve. Thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology. These four-piece rods are available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted at the Winston Shop in Twin Bridges, Montana and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Winston Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Chico, we'd like to give you a little bit of heads up on the great gifts we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we will be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, uh, a premier fly fishing magazine, and two pairs of tickets to one of the international sportsmen's expositions. So if you have three chances to win tonight. Now, if you haven't registered yet, you can go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Chico's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Chico Fernandez has fly fished around the world for many years. His saltwater flies are staples for several species, and students of his saltwater and fly casting classes abound. He's the second angler ever to catch a white marlin on the fly in the early 1980s, and he's held numerous IGFA tippet class world records, including the largest fly-caught redfish ever, a 42-plus pounder, if you can imagine that. After leaving his accounting background in the Burger King Corporation in the 1970s, he devoted himself full-time to outdoor pursuits and he has become an icon in the saltwater arena, personally impacting many thousands of boaters and anglers. Chico's writings have appeared in over 400 publications, including book chapters, the Fish Hair Saltwater Tying Guide, and his very popular book, Fly Fishing for Bonefish, which has biology by Aaron Adams, Ph.D. Chico's a columnist in Saltwater Fly Fishing Magazine, a contributing editor, for Fly Fisherman Magazine, as well as department editor for Florida Sportsman Magazine. He has several videos on the market, including fly casting, knots, and fishing with kids. 
He has consulted for numerous fir firms, currently including Scientific Anglers 3M, Scott Rods, and Costa Del Mar Sunglasses, among others. He's a charter member of the Board of Governors of the Federation of Fly Fishers, and he's on the Advisory Council of the Snook Foundation. He's also chairman of Bonefish Research for Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited. You may know Chico Fernandez from his saltwater fly casting classes at Florida Keys Outfitters, and I'm sure many of you know of the Benback series of flies he popularized. He also has other standards, such as the Bonefish Special, Chico's Snook Fly, Chico's Shrimp Patterns, and others. And, oh, did I mention he's also a photographer? Chico, I get winded just thinking of all the things you've done and the many efforts you're involved with. I want to welcome you tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm proud to be here. Well, Chico, let's uh, let's start out on why uh, why do you like fishing for snooks so much? Uh, I think snook after after fishing 50 years now, fly fishing 50 years actually. I fish 60, but fly fishing 50 years. And I caught all these species by now, most of the freshwater, all of the saltwaters, excluding the swordfish, all the marlin, all of that stuff. The snook remains the mystery fish. He's idiosyncratic. He's unpredictable, partly because he lives in a world where there are so many variables, not only of temperature and of tide, but also of salinity, which makes a huge difference of how the snook uh, move and feed and act, etc. So you're always having all these factors to to multiply and to and to try to come up with a solution. Uh, he also takes surface flies. He's very visual, like bonefish, very visual when he comes up and takes a fly. Uh, he, he's just unique. And then the world he lives in, the mangrove, the the many wild orchids and bromelias on the mangrove, the great blue heron, an occasional deer, an occasional raccoon rarely but occasionally a black bear, um, so many other things around that brackish water world, it's most certainly my favorite. I love the bonefish and the permit, and I enjoy writing the book and everything, but the world of the snook is my favorite. It sounds like there's a lot going on around oh, fishing. It's, it's not it's, just fishing, it's the, it's the environment and the, the, the nature that, that you get to enjoy while fishing. And could you kind of describe that the life cycle then of the snook? Yes, um, what happens is that the, somewhere around the springtime, the big snook come out mainly into passes and deeper water. Uh, the female snook lays the eggs, the female fertilizes the eggs, and uh, millions of them are born. Uh, one fraction of, I forget what it is, but it's, it's a tenth of one percent or hundreds of one percent uh, makes it out. Uh, they're too weak to swim against the tide on the passes and, and the channels, et cetera. So they really get swept by the current. Their big um, um, plus here is that they're very, very translucent at the time. They're, they're less than an inch, and they, are, uh, they don't look like a snook. The few that make it to the shallow water, eventually feeding on plankton while they're doing this, uh, eventually start to grow. Usually they grow about an inch. Uh, or so per month. So a year later, they're a foot long. Two years later, they're two feet long or so. Uh, 
Snook are an unusual animal in that when they mature and get large, the males become females. Uh, uh, hermaphrodite or something like that. Hermaphrodite. I can't right. pronounce the, 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 the word. Yeah. Um, uh, they become female. Um, in Florida, the slot, the, 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 the size that you can keep a snook is from 26 inch to 34 inch. Uh, it's been getting smaller and smaller, and thank God, because we don't need to kill many of these guys. It's two per angler, and December and January is closed, and July, August, and September is closed. I always remember those dates because my son, who is a fly fisherman, always complained. He thought it was something against the students. When he was off the summer, he couldn't keep snook. When he came in for Christmas vacation from school, he couldn't keep snook. So we, we always we always remember the snook seasons in the Fernandez family. Of course, now he's an attorney. Now he has no time to keep the snook. He has to work too much. Um, also, snook don't like, once they get big, they don't like fast temperature changes, much like the redfish, incidentally. Uh, low 60s, mid 60s, uh, maybe on dark bottom and way back in the back country where it may heat very fast. But you need 70-degree weather and 75 and 80 and 85 in the flats to sightcast to them in the flats. Otherwise, in the winter, you're headed way into the, into the back country. And by that, I mean so far back, uh, Roger, that you're into fresh water. I mean, they may be feeding on, on frogs. You may catch a snook on one cast and a black bass on the next, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's winter fishing for you, uh, for snook. Summer fishing, you're way, way away from that world and as far into the, uh, into the uh, open water and um, salt uh, water as you can, the highest salinity that you can. But anyway, that's, that's basically uh, snook for you. Uh, Chico, give us those dates again when the seasons are closed for snook. Oh, yes. Um, is July, August, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, June, July, and August, and December and January. Right. I believe February the 1st it starts again. Okay. The, Go ahead. The snooks start out their life in the, in the mangrove shallows, is that correct? No, what happened is the, the big snook, the females, come down from the backwaters into the deeper passes and channels and so on, and there they spawn. So they're no way back then. The snook then, the, the eggs get fertilized and they're born in those passes. The current of those passes take them wherever they want to. Those that get drifted offshore generally don't make it. Sure. But those tiny ones that can get to the shallow waters and hide in the turtle grass, the eel grass, the mangrove roots, um, in between the oyster bars, some, but mainly so, mainly turtle grass and mangrove roots and and so on, uh, make it. Remember, they don't go, the snook never sees Spartina grass and shoal grass because the snook ends about mid-Florida or so, although okay. there are a few in, in, in Texas, okay. southern Texas. Now, I, from what you say, I gather this is somewhat variable, but can you describe to us sort of in their different uh, habitats what it is the snook eat? Boy, uh, when they're in very... Um, very high salinity. If they're big, mullet is the biggie. A big mullet, the mullet run, that's a big thing for the snook. Telchers, glass minnows, etc., etc. When they start coming further into the brackish water, 
the regular big shrimp, the paneo shrimp, which is the shrimp you eat in your shrimp cocktail uh, when it's very large, uh, but it's not pink and whitish as you have in your shrimp cocktail. It's actually a gray, a translucent grayish or brownish, tannish, depending on uh, on a variety of salinity and uh, bottom and so on. They eat those shrimp a lot. Also, they like uh, they like other crustaceans such as crabs. And by crab, while well, they'll eat baby stone crabs and they'll eat many um, uh, box crabs that look like stone crab. The crab they like is the blue crab. That's the crab that you also eat in your restaurant, uh, the very aggressive blue crab. But as you get further into um, into um, soul water, uh, I'm sorry, fresh water, the diet changes because up there we don't have sardines, and you do have some mullet, but by then they're very large. They may be two, three, four pounds. So now they're eating kilominos, gambusis, um, the mosquito-type minnows. They look more like a guppy, okay? They're, they're slow, fat belly, beer belly, slow-moving, easy to eat for the snook. And then they start eating on frogs late at night. And in the evening, low light, popping frogs right on the surface. So they have quite quite a yeah. diet. I'm not sure what they don't eat, but it, but the diet <laughs> changes because they change the environment. When they go in the surf, uh, then they're feeding on that world. And while they may feed on some crabs and some uh, and things like that, the surf is really about pelchers and sardines and mullet and like that. Occasionally they'll even uh, attack a needlefish, but the needlefish, while they're wonderful. Uh, a piece of food for them are very, very fast. So it's quite a thing to see a big snook trying to catch up with a needlefish. Well, I've, I've got a couple of follow-up questions here, Chico, because you hit on Good. a couple of things that, that we, we uh, were interested. One, a quick, quick one was uh, a license. Uh, because you're fishing salt and fresh water, what kind of licensing? Yes, in Florida, until recently, I don't know if it's changed, but until recently you get a snook stamp. So on, uh, your, on your regular saltwater license, they actually put a stamp, a snook stamp, uh, and you paid extra for that. That's one of the okay. very few things you paid extra. Uh, having reached senior citizen, I don't need any of that right now. <laughs> that's, that's probably one of the advantages, but I released almost all my snook. As a matter of fact, I haven't killed a snook in quite a while. But snook are supposed to, are, are good eating from what Unfortunately, I Unfortunately, they're very good eating. Yeah, yeah. Very good eating. The other follow-up question I have is um, when you, you mentioned mullet a couple times now, and I understand there's big mullet runs in Florida. Uh, right. Does that create an opportunity for, for snook? Oh, tremendous. When the, yes, it is classic. When the mullet run comes in, what they call the mullet run, what happens is in the fall, with the weather getting cooler, the mullet come from up north. They go through Cape Canaveral, Cocoa Beach, um, further down Jupiter, Salerno, all the way to Miami. And they're running down the beach, tarpon, occasionally a big red, um, occasionally kingfish, and I've even seen sailfish come up in the shallow waters of the beaches. But we're talking about snook. Uh, snook come in to feed on them very, very much, day and night. They patrol those schools. Um, the beaches are one of my favorite places. My favorite is the mangrove area, but the beaches are wonderful uh, doing the mullet run. You need a big fly to imitate that. You need a muddler-type, big big head tapering as it goes. Uh, the biggest you can so, uh, throw, Roger, um, 
six inches if you can throw it, six and a half inches. Uh, deer hair, or if you can make one out of wool, uh, wool head so that it sinks a little more, that may be good too. Um, wool is fairly light when, it, when it, you're false casting it because you, to reach the mullet, um, usually you've got to make very long cast. Now, when the mullet are gone and you're fishing for snook otherwise, uh, at other times, then the snook follow the trough, often the trough that's right on the beach, right on your feet. And you walk very carefully and try to see the fish way ahead of you and cast diagonally to the beach. That's classic snook fishing in the beaches. Neat. And if you hook a big snook, he's got no place to go. There are no mangroves. There's very little structure in the beach. So, you, so I've seen some 20-pound snook landed on a seven weight. He's got no place to go. It makes a very long run, but, you know, get the camera out. He's yeah, does it get hung up in those mangroves and cut you off? And that's like right. That. The, mangroves, the mangroves are another thing. There are ways to getting around that, but the mangroves are another thing. Now, you mentioned that the slot limit for snook is 26 to 34 inches. Yes. How, how big do these guys get? You know, a good rule of thumb for most fish in the world, except maybe a bass that's very fat and certain fish are awful fat, but a 30-inch brown more or less, brown trout can be 10 pounds. A 30-inch bonefish, it's about 10 pounds. In the Keys, is probably 11, 11 and a half because they're a little chunky. Uh, so a 30-inch nook, give or take, is 10 pounds. 34, you know what? The, unless he's super fat, he could be 14 or so. A 40-inch snook is 20 pounds. Okay. I mean, that's just a rough, uh, if you get one that just laid their eggs and is super skinny, it would be a little less. If you get a real chunky guy that eats lots of linguine with their, with their mullet, uh, he, may be, he may be a couple of pounds bigger. But that's a very good rule of thumb. Sure. Now, you mentioned that they're mainly around the lower half of Florida and maybe over into Texas. Are they distributed throughout the Caribbean as well? Oh, absolutely. Belize. I used to fish them in Cuba when I was young. You know, I came from Cuba in 1959 with the advent of communism and all of that. And but I used to fish them there when I was young in the in the um, late 50s. Uh, he the snook is is a tropical fish of brackish water, unlike redfish that are subtropical. And Miami is as far down as they want to go. There are no redfish in Cuba. There are no redfish in Belize, for example. Uh, and sea trout are the same. They're, they're subtropical. The snook, like the tarpon, they're tropical. Therefore, uh, Belize, uh, all Central America, South America, Mexico, uh, I've caught many snook in Belize. Uh, Nicaragua, uh, all of that. Um, Panama, on, even on the ocean size, has the Centropomus nigrison, the big black snook. Um, so yes, absolutely, all of that, uh, all of that world is, uh, is snook world. The only reason we don't have them hardly in the Bahamas is because snook needs, like redfish and sea trout, needs fresh water mixed. So mm -hmm. they need the brackish water, and there are no Bahamian rivers. But if there is a lagoon that uh, that uh, that absorb that takes on some fresh water through rainfall that has a canal or a channel or a little creek or something that has fresh water, I guarantee you there'll be some snook in there, way out in okay. the Bahamas someplace. All right. We're going to take just a real brief uh, break here. When we return, we'll be talking more with Chico Fernandez about snook on the hook, and we'll be finding out 
more details about this elusive species. The Federation of Fly Fishers is offering a series of seminars presented by Federation experts at many of the fly fishing shows orchestrated around the country by Chuck Ferminski and his associates. Referred to as the Fly Fishing Show, these shows are being held in Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Illinois, North Carolina, Washington, Oregon, and California. Go to www.flyfishingshow.com for the dates and locations. The Federation is charging a nominal fee of $25 that includes with the seminar a one-year free membership in the FFF. The Federation instructional approach is unique in that it provides a copy of the lecture materials to each attendee as a handout, within which they can take notes during the presentation. As a result, the attendee gets to leave with a great reference tool for future use. For more information, contact the Federation of Fly Fishers headquarters at 406-222-9369. That's 406-222-9369. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chico Fernandez about fly fishing for snook. If you'd like to ask Chico a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Chico your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible tonight. Chico, I, I must say I'm fascinated by some of the different things that you're involved with. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit about, oh, say, some of these endeavors like the Snook Foundation? or your chairmanship on the Bonefish Research Committee for Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited. Yes, I'm a founder of the uh, BTU, Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited, and I'm chair of the Bonefish uh, Department. Um, Billy Pate is chair of the Tarpon Department. Um, and what we do there is simply um, first gather money, which we seem to do okay, uh, but then we've hired a, a, a variety of marine biologists that are experts on that field, on those fields of bonefish and tarpon, and later we'll be doing per permit too, um, trying to find out how they live, what they need, how the environment and the pressure for the anglers is affecting them so we can better protect them as more and more anglers are starting to fish. Uh, the Snook Foundation is a similar situation, trying to find out more about the fish um, so we can one so we can help them and also so that when we have to argue against commercial fishermen we have hard fact which is part of the uh, battle yeah it seems like today i was just reading some studies and uh you know we always blame the commercial fishermen but uh i was reading a study on snapper down in the caribbean and uh how that's being affected by by sport fishermen as well and so it's not. We can't always blame the, the, com, the no. commercial fishermen. No, no, no you can't. Uh, they are part of the blame, but there are many anglers that are not sportsmen, uh, and they should be, but they're not. Uh, some of them feel that it's their right. You know, it's, it's their right to catch uh, the fish they want to, but where they got that idea, it's really a privilege to be out there, and you you need to leave the place as well as you left it at best. Yeah, there is a. Um uh, a saying out here in the West, for instance, when you're hiking in the mountains or going down the Grand Canyon, you know, take only take only pictures and leave only footprints. And uh, absolutely, and, that, and that's so that somebody else can enjoy enjoy what you just enjoyed. But um, the um, 
Well, what about uh, projects you're working on? Um, are you doing any DVDs, any writing any books right now? Well, okay, what I'm, I'm doing too many things. One, I'm, I'm three-quarters of the way through of a, a, a book of fly fishing for redfish, same as I did for the, um, for the bonefish. It'll be 100,000 words, uh, pretty large, uh, over 100 photographs. Uh, if you've seen my bonefish book, Fly Fishing for Bonefish, this is going to be very much the same. So that's one project. Uh, Flip Pollard and I are working on a project to do a very special uh, DVD on on, on fly casting to fly fish, that is learning to fly cast with the fly on, throwing a, a, a heavy uh, popper, a big fly, a, a heavily weighted nymph, and the casting is different when you have a big fly on than when you practice in the lawn without a fly and without the water. Uh, the rod, whether you realize it or not, is loaded deeper. You need more torque. Just like towing a boat, you need the V8. You don't need a, an inline four. It, it, it is a little bit different. Um, Flip believes in that, and I do too, so we're working on that. Uh, so that's another project. Uh, I'm also working on a project of fishing northern Spain, where my grand-grandparents came from. And I'm eagerly doing that too, because my cousin is the ambassador to Spain from the United States, presently. Oh. And I got a get over there and get going before it's over. Uh, <laughs> so I got a deadline there, too. So so getting too many projects, you know, I no longer practice my clarinet. I have a passion for jazz, have had all my life, been a, a jazz historian all my life. But I, you can only do so much, and given a choice, <laughs> I'm, I'm fly fishing. I'll just hear Benny Goodman. He, he did it better than I could. Well, that's uh, we did get a... Uh... A question in here. It must be somebody that knows you. Uh, Ken Menard in Oregon. I don't know if that rings yes, a bell. Yes, yes, yes. He know. says, what type of jazz do you listen to when you snook fish? <laughs> well, I can answer that quickly, and it may disappoint uh, the folks. Uh, when I fish, I listen to no music. I want to hear the birds. I want to hear the, the, the snook popping. Uh, I'm not going to listen to Ellington or Coltrane or, or anybody or Patsy Cline. Uh, I'm not listening to anybody. I I don't like to be outdoors and listen to music. I, I don't somehow. Now, I'll get on the car coming home, and sure, I, I would listen to Coltrane or Miles or somebody, but but not while I'm out. Uh, while I'm out, I w besides, you need to be in rhythm with what's happening, the right. tide and the birds. Sometimes a certain amount of birds waiting at a certain depth, even at a distance, I know there are redfish tailing there. Just because the birds are feeding on the same thing that, say, their roasted spoon, spoonbill, I know they're feeding on crabs, and in a foot and a half of water, a foot of water, you know what? They're going to be redfish there. So you have to stay in rhythm with that. I don't want to, you know, space out and, and, and be listening to a, a wonderful passage of jazz when I should be fishing. Sure. Well, Chico, we, before we move into uh, the equipment that you like to use, uh, we have a couple more questions about the snook themselves. One is, uh, what kind of enemies, what kind of natural enemies do they have? We, they're regarded as kind of a spooky fish. They're in uh, shallow water at least a portion of their well, life. Uh, what, what do they fear? Unfortunately, while a small snook could be taken by an osprey or an eagle, and porpoise do chase them and eat them and kill them, uh, as they do big redfish also, 
the big enemy is man. The big enemy is us. Um, that's really the bottom line. Now, occasionally, a hurricane or a freeze, uh, extremely cold weather, you know, sometimes Miami has been known to, to hit the low 30s and mid-30s at night on a very rare evening, for sure. That's extremely cold for snook, and many of them may die. But over the years, I've found, all my life fishing, i found that there's almost never total destruction by something made by Mother Nature. The hurricane seems to wipe out all the mangroves, but two years later, there are mangrove shoots all over the place because only the branches were broken, and so on and so forth. But man, when he puts up a parking lot, as I say, there is no, no coming back. So I'm afraid to tell you we are the enemies. Yeah, well, that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, here's a big one that you'll not be surprised to hear. Where are the best places that you'd say to go for snook? Much like big tarpon, I get people saying, I have a lot of money. Money's no object. Where can I go that I can really, with a big tarpon, I'd have to say homo sass on the Florida Keys, and you'll have to battle with the rest of the people. With the snook, there's a little bit of that. Uh, having all the money in the world, uh, late fall, spring, and early, I'm sorry, late fall, winter, and, and spring, hire one of the good Everglades guides to take you way back to sightcast to snook, which incidentally is to die for. A mm-hmm. foot of water, fish with their back out, backs out. Uh, again, the bromelias, black bass occasionally, an occasional redfish, an occasional baby tarpon, quite a few 10, 20, 30 pound bull sharks in the fresh water. Remember, bull sharks can inhabit fresh water just as easily. No giant bull sharks way back there as they are in Flamingo and in the Everglades. Um, that is one of the best places. Uh, Casablanca has a few little places way back where they can take you and have fairly good snook fishing, but it's you can't snook fish the whole week. Uh, Belize has a few places, the, the northern river out of uh, Ambergris Key. There's a few places, but there's no Shangri-La uh, as there used to be years ago. Uh, I'd say the Everglades with a good guide is as reliable as snook are going to get. I hate to say reliable. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I want that perfectly clear. Strike that word. Yeah, strike Reliably that word. unreliable. <laughs> When when you um, when you're talking about the, the snook in these these different areas, are they very spooky back? I mean, when you're saying the backs are out of the water, is that really they can tough be, fishing? Yeah, they're not always the back out, but it's very shallow. There's they can be spooky. Yes, they they're spooky. This is a this is unlike redfish. Remember, the snook is not a bottom feeder. Redfish and bonefish, sometimes you can sneak in on them because they're feeding on the bottom, the tail is up, they're muddying, they don't see as well. You can sneak up sometimes extremely close, especially a redfish. Uh, I've caught them three feet from me, tailing, not knowing I'm there. That's not the case with Mr. Snook because the snook with the lower jaw in the bottom is not a bottom feeder. He's, he's geared to feed forward and up, pop something on the surface. So he's always looking up. Uh, like a barracuda in the shallows is hard to sneak in. A big sea trout is hard. They're not, they're not bottom feeder. Black drum, easy because they're feeding on the bottom. So, yes, it requires that you make a decent cast. Not giant, but 
somewhere between 40 and 65, 70 feet, depending on the situation. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay. Now, um, we, we talked about the snook getting pretty big. You said 40 inches. Do they get bigger than 40 inches? Uh, yes. As far as what they get, they get over 50 pounds. Any oh. snook over 10 pounds on fly is a nice fish. Every snook over 20 is a very big fish. But every year, quite a few over 20 are caught, and there's been a few, not many, over 30. I've caught them in the high 20s on fly, very high 20s. I've never caught one over 30, and I, okay. that's my favorite fish. I'd love to have done it. I've hooked them, uh, but they've whooped me. They whooped you. <laughs> they whooped me. Well, with a fish that big, uh, Rick uh, from uh, Nina, Wisconsin, wants to know, well, what kind of fly rod, you know, what size fly rod do you use for, for the backwater fishing? Okay. Like any type of fishing, the rod has to do, the rod means the line, and the line has to do with the fly size. Just like on trout fishing, if you're using a big woolly bugger, you might use a six-weight trout rod, but if you're throwing a, a number 18 light Cahill, you may use a four-weight or a three-weight or even a two-weight. Well, with snook, it's the same. If you're fishing the backcountry, the typical fly will be, oh, a number one, maybe a 1-0, seducer, bend back, clouser, muddler, etc., a marabou uh, a streamer. That size fly is best thrown with something like an 8-weight. If you like super light and you care to fight a snook in the mangroves with a 7-weight, I occasionally do. Flip does a lot. That's cool. If you want to throw slightly bigger fly or you want a little more power to if you do hook a big snook, which I'd like to have, a nine weight would be a better choice. So that gives you some sort of a range there, hopefully. Nine feet or shorter, incidentally. Don't get a nine and a half foot. It'll bend double, and you do need to put power right away. So a nine footer is a good all around. If you're going to get specialized, eight foot eight, eight foot nine, very good. I use an eight foot eight hilly ply a lot only because it's shorter. Remember, the shorter the rod, within reason, the more accurate you are. The longer the rod, the further you can cast, the more you can tire, but the less accurate. Okay. Well, now, Chico, you've mentioned the different areas that snook hang out, so we have to believe that there may be a variety of fish species that one could hook into. Absolutely. Does that affect your choice of a rod weight? No, the, the size of the fly is everything. You know, when you, when you go to Texas to fish for redfish, the occasional snook, some areas have giant sea trout, <clears throat> which I love to fish for, very hard to catch. Fish between 5 and 12, 14 pounds, 15 pounds, giant, big sea trout. They eat very large mullet and, and, and fish. So here's a fish that you could land on a six-weight. They're not super powerful but you can use a six weight because you have to throw a 1-0, at least a 1-0 that's six inches long. And in order to throw that 65 feet to a fish that's laying in a foot of water, you need more rod. So occasionally you're using an eight or a nine. On a fish you could land on lighter equipment, but the fly dictates it. So, okay. um, so uh, but yet the guys fishing for redfish in really shallow water in Texas using number four seducers, Number four, seducers, often use the six weight and even lighter. How can they get away with it? The fly is very small. And you can land a five-pound redfish on a six weight, of course. Sure. So that's well, Tr it. 
Tristan up in Plymouth, Mass. has a question about leader construction. He mentioned mm -hmm. that in your bonefish book you talk about you like a butt section that's not too stiff but not too soft. And uh, he's kind of wondering, uh, uh, he's new at building leaders and, and wonders what, if you have brands that you recommend or how you I put do. Yes, yes, I, I do. Uh, and I'm not attached to either of them. Um, if, the, if the line is too, too stiff, uh, I better not mention names, but if it's too, too stiff, it's very hard to tie knots. It doesn't tie knots well. If the leader is super soft, that's fine. It'll make a very light, tight loop when you, when you, at the end of the cast, but it'll also get a lot of wind knots. So here's, here's a, a situation where the middle of the road is a good way, place to walk. What are middle of the road type fly line? Uh, the regular real fly, uh, leaders are pretty good. Uh, Maxima. Clear makes a very good line, and that's the middle. Uh, in South Florida, Andy, it's the same polymer, same middle of the, of the road. Incidentally, don't buy the camouflage and all of that. It just looks camouflage in the water. Clear, it's the absolute best. And I know it's the cheapest, and it doesn't sound like that's what, but everybody I know that's deep into this, uh, that's in the business, is using clear. Okay. Does that go for your fly lines as well? Um, old Al from Glenrose, Texas, talks about uh, some of the, the studies that you've done on uh, line color and wonders what you think about some of the, uh, the high-vis lines that were in use today. Yeah. By now, I have no doubt at all that high-vis is the way to go. Um, and I've been convinced of this for many years. Uh, even in tournaments in the Florida Keys, where the bonefish have a Ph.D. or teach at a Ph.D. level, it seems, uh, a bright line is good or one that you can see. You need to see the line to cast well. If you don't believe me, go out in the yard at night when you can't see the line very well and try to see how well you can cast. What happens is that while you're fly casting, you see the line on the peripheral of your vision. Uh, early in the morning, late in the evening, if you have a line that's medium light yellow, they're very hard to see. You'll notice your timing is throwing off a bit. So seeing the line, you can only not only cast better, but you're also more accurate in casting, say, against the shoreline. And finally, when you finally do lay a line on that big snook and you're more or less in front, but you lost your fly, or in bone fishing where you absolutely can't see your fly once it drops, the only way you know if, you let, if you're okay once the bonefish moves around a little, if your fly is in front, is to look at the end of the fly line, that should be very visible, and say, okay, my fly is 10 or 12 feet behind that. That's what every guide in the world does when he's pulling. If the line is very hard to see, he or you have no idea whether, it's, whether you should pick it up or start stripping. So visible lines, uh, I think, are of the essence anymore. Most of the people I know think the same way that Flip Pallets and Sandy Moret and the tournament guys that are into this to the hill, that's what they do. Okay. Well, let's take a brief break, and when we return, Chico will be answering more of your questions about catching those wary snook. Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, Bob Clouser, Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of these and more fly fishing greats have been involved in the International Sportsman's Expositions over the past 30 years. Each of the five ISC events is the market's largest sportsman's event all year, featuring up to 600 exhibitors, hundreds of seminars, and special events, including ISC's own Best of the West Distance Casting Contest and the new Iron 
Fly Tying Contest. Visit www.sportsexpos.com for seminar schedules and more information. That's sportsexpos.com. And come meet the legends of, and those that soon may be at ISC events in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chico Fernandez about fly fishing for snook. If you'd like to get a question to Chico, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show where it says, click here to ask Chico your most important question. We'll receive those questions promptly, and we're trying to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. Well, Chico, um, in terms of equipment, uh, are there knots that you prefer? We know you're a knot guy, and, and we're, yes. we're wondering what kind of knots you like to use on that equipment and when you're going to be banging around in the mangroves. By far, the construction of the leader I do with a, with a blood knot. Uh, it's, it can be done very strong. The, the trick of the blood knot is that because you're trying to tie the similar sizes, you're going, say, from a butt section of 40 to 30 to 20 to 12, etc. when you tie them, the, the thinner line needs to be wrapped more times than the thicker line on the blood knot. How much on the, thick, on the heavier lines, 3 to 5 would be okay. By the time you get to the tippet, Six to three would be a good compromise. The strength is only part of the reason that that is probably the best knot. The second thing is that it can be made extremely small and trimmed very, very close once it's tightened to the end. And third, that a blood knot can be tied with using very little amount of mono. Now, I know leader is cheap and another foot or two can even be, be figured in, in, in a one penny, it's less than one penny. But the reason is, if you have a leader that's a little bit too long, or you tie one a little too long and you notice that one section is a little bit too big and it's hinging and you need to shorten it, that happens. Well, with any other knot, say the surgeons, you'd have to destroy the whole leader because you need a lot of line to overlap it. With a, with a blood knot, you cut it, and with just three inches or, or so of either side, you retie the knot. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful old-fashioned knot, but it's a wonderful knot. However, there's something else we haven't mentioned. At the end of the leader, you can't put the fly on. Snook abrade the mono more than almost anything I know, except of course sharks and barracuda and 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 uh, um, kingfish and fish with teeth. They cut the line. But as far as abrading, such as ladyfish, such as tarpon. Pound per pound, nothing abrades, rubs that line faster than a snook. So you need a shock tipper or a bite tipper, a little piece of heavy mono to overcome the, the abrasion of, of the snook. To tie that piece, and a good, a good size would be, say, 30 or 40 pounds, uh, you can still use a blood knot. What you do is the following. What all of us are doing now is the following. You take the tippet, let's say it's a 12 or 16-pound tippet. You double it, and with that double line, it's called an improved blood knot. With that double line, you tie it to the 40-pound. Six turns to six, six turns to three. I tend to even like seven turns to three. That means seven turns of the double tippet three turns of the 40 pound. How long should the bite tippet be? 
for IGFA world records, a foot or less. But you don't want over a foot even if you don't care to catch a world record because two feet of 40 pounds at the end of your leader would be really hard to cast. So what do I recommend you have? Eh, seven inches, eight inches, something like that of, of shock tippet uh, would be fine. Um, so I, I thought I'd add that because you've got to have a bite tippet. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's great, and I think so. We've covered we've covered the line, and and we've covered the rod, and uh, any any special things on reels. Uh, on reels, while the bonefish fight and the permit fight in open water, I equate it to the Madison Square Garden fight with all the all the rules and regu regulations. The snook fight is an alley fight kicking on the knee and throwing the, the garbage can over the head. It's a short, rambunctious fight where, where the fish gets under the mangroves, and I've seen them tear up mangrove roots and, and mud going up. It's a short fight usually. He does, usually doesn't run f far because it's very short. In the flats, I have seen him go 40 yards. But this is a short, a, a very short fight. So capacity is not a big deal. But since you don't have a reel just for snook, you'll probably have your regular 200 yards and eight-way line or what have you. But being able to retrieve quickly, just a few quick feet here and there doing that fight is of the essence. So a reel with a larger diameter where there is a narrow reel with a narrow spool but big that you can retrieve a la Able 3N or whatever, or some of the scientific angler large arbors are wonderful for that. Or you have a, an old Hardy St. Aidan or, or Hardy St. John, or, what, or, or you have a Tibor um, large arbor or whatever. Uh, being able to retrieve quick just for those few little moments, it's a pretty big deal. That a drag should be smooth, yes, but that's not the biggest deal. Fast retrieve is of the essence here. Now, are there any differences in, I think you've pretty much been talking about the, the fresh or brackish water uh, fishing. Is there any difference in the surf fishing that, uh, as far as equipment goes? That same equipment will do you for the surf. True, the fight will be different then. You hook the fish, he heads for deep water, you let him run, it'd be like fighting a striper on, on, on uh, Nantucket, um, he, he, except he may jump. He certainly has the body to come out with a head shake, all of that very exciting, but it's open water. And that big, there's no disadvantage to the bigger spool. So, so no, it won't be any different. And incidentally, I also wanted to mention that while all of this fishing is done with a floating line, well, let me, let me mention something about the floating line. I often use like a bonefish taper line, very stiff, very nice to cast in 90-degree weather, but it floats very poorly. It's meant to float in 100% salinity, mm -hmm. 36 parts per thousand. But a lot of your snook fishing and your red fishing is going to be done in brackish water, which is not as, not as, as buoyant, or maybe way back in the winter in almost fresh water. That bonefish line, which incidentally is magnificent, don't belong there. It's going to sink a little bit. You're going to bitch. So what do you do? You use a regular fly line now, a line for bass, like a bass bug line, a line that has a lot of air in it. Yes, that line is softer, and bone fishing in 90-degree weather would, would hang on the guys like wet linguine. But fishing for snook in that backwater, 
I prefer the regular floating line rather than the specialized bonefish pyramid, tarpon lines, tropical lines. And it's, it's a big difference. Okay, but what I wanted to get back to is I fish sinking lines for snook. It's not as exciting, perhaps, as sight casting, but you know what? On an outgoing tide, when the flat is almost out of the water, you throw a sinking line or a shooting head, a wet cell 3, a wet cell 4. If you use a teeny, whatever matches your rod, 8 or 9 weight, uh, 275 to 350 grain, and you mend like a river, and you let that big seducer 4 inches long close to the bottom, I've caught big snook, big redfish. I've hooked 100-pound tarpon, big sea trout. Look down, you name it, sharks, big jack creval, uh, mackerel. You can hook anything on that. So it's a lot of fun to do. And in passes, in inlets, uh, et cetera, uh, it's kind of neat to have a sinking line. And something very special when you hook a fish and he starts peeling line and it gets in the backing and he's still going and going, you hope it's a big snook, but maybe it's a tarpon that hasn't jumped. Maybe you've hooked a big jack creval, which you soon know when he slows down and starts giving you the throb. Uh, you don't know what you've got, and, and there's some excitement to that too. So uh, don't don't knock the the, the, the sinking line. It's, it's an alternative. If I can sight cast for the snook, sure, I'll do that. But many times you can, or many times the snook are in the flat. But you know what? Super cloudy, glary, you can't see a fish. Okay. Until the sun comes up, wonderful situation to blind cast the channels. Chico, you're you're making me weak describing a fish running like that. My heart's pounding. <laughs> I I can't I can't hold back any longer. I've got to ask you about flies. Okay. Now we've got lots of questions from from the audience. Uh, could you give us a rundown of flies that you like to have on board when you're when you're after after snook? Okay, again. A presentation, what flies do snook take? They take all the flies. The, po the point is, what fly do you need to be able to show him the fly at that, in that particular situation? In other words, if, if he is in super shallow water, almost with his back out, let's say a 10, 12-pound fish, in less than a foot of water, in 8 inches, his back is out, or even in a foot of water cruising along the mangroves, you throw a clouser, you're going to screw up. Why? Because the clouser is going to be hooked on the bottom immediately. Wrong fly. Wonderful fly, wrong place. You throw a seducer. A seducer is like a giant dry fly almost. It gets suspended in the water. It doesn't hardly sink. It undulates and sits suspended. Just what you need, a big fly in a foot of water that doesn't hang. And you'll have a wire or a mono weed guard anyway. But now... You're fishing a shoreline that's two and a half feet of water, strong outgoing tide, great for snook. Would you throw a seducer? No, it's going to stay on the surface, and there's nothing on the surface. You need to get down right away. A big clouser would be a good fly, you see. So it depends on where you are. You're fishing the beaches. Everything there, the sand is white. Believe me, everything there is white. If you're orange, you were lunch yesterday. So you're trying to you're trying to be inconspicuous. So the shrimp, the sardines, the glass minnow, everybody's whitish, translucent. So a glass minnow fly, a white seducer, um, a white bendback, uh, a white clouser. If there's a few sardines from the greenback, okay, a little bit of a greenback on the fly. But 
and then how heavy, depending on where the fish is. If, if, he's, if he's cruising the beach in two, three feet of water, a clouser would be okay. Maybe a weighted seducer would be okay. A bend back uh, would get down there. And incidentally, in the beach, with rare exception, whether you're striped bass fishing or snook fishing, you've got to have a clear line. Forget the floater. You need a clear line. Why? Well, a clear line is simply a line that doesn't have any any uh, micro balloons, no air, so it doesn't float, and it has no crushed tungsten, as sinking lines do these days. It's simply neutral, clear. A piece of 30-pound clear monofilament for a uh, core and clear coating. This line is more dense because it doesn't have the air, and it doesn't spook fish as much. When you are blind casting for snook in very clear water, like a beach, you throw in four or five feet of water, with a floating line and the shadow and all of that, you spook a lot of fish. And you do for, for uh, incidentally, for stripers too. A clear line doesn't do this, doesn't spook them as well. And because the beach can be rough sometimes, a clear line is floating up in the surface of every wave and creates huge slack. You can't impart action. The clear line immediately is under the waves, admittedly only two or three inches, maybe five inches, but under the wave. So any twist you give the fly, you're giving them action. So if you're in the beach, you're using a fairly long leader, a light color fly, and a clear line. And when you say clear line, you're talking about? Uh, Monocord, still water. Uh, right. Well, line I was just line. Say what we might use in a lake for intermediate sinking line. Yes, uh, yes, it's uh, an intermediate sinking line. Yeah, but it doesn't. Yeah. It has no color or anything like that. As right. clear as you can have it. Yeah, that's exactly what I use in still water. Yes, yes, yes. A matter of fact, uh, Scientific Angler makes one line they call the still water. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got a, a question here from Joe McMahon in Thibodeau, Louisiana. I think uh -huh. met him. He says in first saltwater fly fishers picnic in October. And he was asking for some clarification on, and I don't know if this was a deer hair bugs that you were tying, um, and uh, okay. said that it shouldn't be too tightly packed and it's important to have enough marabou in it, but not too much. But he says you never, you never got around to really clarifying these descriptions. Could you go into that a little bit more? Okay, and, okay. Did these play a role with snook? Uh, uh, yes, yes, a, a, a marabou muddler, a, a big marabou muddler, um, three and a half to four and a half inches on a number one one zero. This wonderful fly. Um, first of all, deer hair by the great tires can be packed almost like like cork, and you don't want quite that. You want the thing to push awake but you don't need something hard like cork on the surface. You want the head to push wake, and you want the head to create the eddies that impart action on the marabou that's behind. As you probably know, if you take a bunch of marabou and tie it on a hook and move it through the water after you wet it properly, it won't wiggle the same as if it's got a head of, marabou, a head of deer here in front. The eddy that it creates is very visual, even to you as you move it in front of, of, of your, of, of the, uh, right in front of your feet. Um, as far as the marabou, it's hard to say over the phone what too much is, but when you put too much marabou, even when it gets wet, it doesn't work quite as well, and it stays. On, it takes a huge amount of effort to wet the whole thing. It's always dry in the middle, 
and it doesn't work the same. When you put too little, it becomes the size of the lead of a pencil, and there's nothing there. So you've got to have enough to have bulk and yet to have action, and it's important that you wet it real well and squeeze it with your fingers all the way through and wet it again until it's fully wet. So that's what I mean. And marabou, a muddler is just a generic term, but it's a deer hair head with marabou in the back and some flashaboo or any type of flash in between. Uh, incidentally, black is a wonderful color for snook in off-color water or at night or late in the evening. Remember, black casts the best silhouette against the sky. That's why black is such a good color for bass on the surface. And it's a wonderful color for snook. It's also a wonderful color for real big tarpon. It's not as good a color for bottom-feeding fish like bonefish and redfish for some reason. It's not as good. But big sea trout, tarpon, baby tarpon, and definitely snook will take it. Chico, we'll take uh, just a short break again, and, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about snook. Good. Have you ever dreamed about the classic actions of bamboo fly rods? Did you know that it's possible to make your own bamboo fly rods? With the help of Power Fibers online magazine, you can do just that. Power Fibers is a magazine dedicated to making bamboo fly rods and telling the stories about bamboo through the ages. From rod making techniques to stories about fishing bamboo rods to rod maker profiles to classic tapers, Power Fibers has it all. Visit our website at www.powerfibers.com. That's www.powerfibers.com for more information. We hope to hear from you soon. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chico Fernandez about fly fishing for snook. If you'd like to ask Chico a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Chico your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And it looks like, Don, that we got a, a question in here that um, uh, from Mike uh, Steens, I think it is, in Kentucky. He says, hi, Chico. I've enjoyed your magazine writing for years. Uh, second week in April, North Captiva Island, Florida. In general terms, as opposed to specific locations, where will the snook be hanging out? Well, Captiva and uh, that area of Pine Island and so on, the, the snook come along the beaches early and late in the evening. Um, they're somewhat easy, relatively easy to see in that sandy bottom. They're usually not far out. Sometimes they're right on that trough that happens on the turn of the wave, and you have to cast to them 20 feet behind on the, on the sand or cast way ahead of them diagonally, as I've mentioned before. Uh, clear line, again, uh, white streamer, white seducer, uh, white bendback, um, fairly translucent uh, glass minnows, a fly that you tie perhaps with, with uh, artificial uh, material, um, some of the translucent, um, the Enrico um, uh, Puglisi, Puglisi uh, who makes those, those very translucent um, artificial hair minnows uh, and glass minnows um, and pinfish, those flies would be very good. Uh, but you're looking at beach early morning, late evening. And let me recommend that you show up at noontime uh, with a beer or an adult drink in hand 
perhaps not even with a fly rod, and look around the beach and decide where you're going to park and where uh, where you're going to fish and walk the beach, etc. Scout it out. So later when you show up at dawn, you don't get lost and start looking for the place because if you lose those first 30 minutes sometimes, you lost it all. Uh, it's soon time to go have a nice breakfast. Uh, that action does not last till noon. This is about very early in the morning, fish till 8 or 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock, uh, fishing or, or less, fishing dies, you go have a big breakfast. So do your scouting to the middle of the day and you know just where you're going to be and what, where you can cross a fence or not. This is not the, early in the morning is not the time to look for that and, and you'll do well. Also, the tackle shops around there, if there's whatever one you can find, I find them usually pretty helpful. Buy a couple of flies from them, you know, uh, patronize them a little bit and, and, and um, do your homework and you may, be, you may do very well. One of the um... Sanibel and Captiva both. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, incidentally, yeah. the Ding Darling Refuge is right there. It's mainly right. non-propel, non, uh, yeah, self-propelled. No yeah. uh, I have canoed that area. Fly fish for redfish and snook there. You may be able to rent a canoe um, and fly fish. I'm a canoeist at heart. Uh, as it comes to fly fishing and approaching fish, I pull my canoes a lot. Anyway, that Ding Darling area is there. You may be able to hire a guy to fish that area. Um, I just want to make the gentleman aware that uh, that that area is there, and that's a wonderful refuge. Yeah, yeah, I've been, I've visited there when we stayed on uh, uh, on the islands down there. Very, mm -hmm. very good yeah. place to go visit as well. Just for oh, neat, wonderful stuff. place. Yeah, yeah. the. Um, uh, there was a question you, you had mentioned the black flies before as and and did you say that those were good in, in stained or tannic water as well? Yes, they are. Okay. Yes, they Rather are. Rather than a bright fly. Then. Uh, I tell you, there's several colors that for some reason or another are staple and they just work. Uh, one which makes no sense at all, but I can't argue with it because it might be the number one. It's a chartreuse fly, a seducer, old chartreuse, or chartreuse with a little bit of grizzly through it and a little bit of flash. There's nothing in, in that world of chartreuse, but they just, it, it just works. And I know certain guides, some of the well-known snook guys like Steve Hoff, is one of the best in the world, um, fishes a chartreuse 90% uh, of the time. So that's a good color. The classic red and white that's been around, there's, there's writing about using red and white flies in the year 400 literally, uh, using white feathers and red wool. So red and white has been around. That's a wonderful red and yellow is also very good. A bent back yellow with a green back is good. Um, and black, as I said. Those are, those, are, there's, those are staples, yes. When you say that the, the chartreuse, too, I guess you're, when you say it doesn't make sense is because there's really no bait fish or anything with that color. Yeah, it just world, looks right? so out of place. Uh, uh, for years I've said this, but uh, there's no fighting it. I mean, it is as good as anything. It just does very well. So uh, I'm not going to argue that the final judge is, is Dr. Snook, not, not Mr. Chico. <laughs> so. Well, before we move on to presentations, Chico, we had a question from Jack Bram up in Toronto. He's tying up your bonefish special, and he wants to know, do you splay 
the two grizzly hackles out, or do you face them in? I usually use the grizzly hackles on that fly on a saddle, not a neck. And so that's fairly soft, but even for the fairly soft, I spray them out, yes. Okay. Not in, no. All right. Well, let's let's move on to, to presentation, and, and I want to get uh, the first question in because it uh, comes from a, a special member in our, our audience who's quite a ways off. This is Naoto, who's in, in Japan. Oh, my And goodness. his experience is with freshwater fly fishing, and he wants to know what you recommend in terms of a freshwater trout fisherman in terms of being able to deal with the presentations necessary for uh, saltwater snook fishing? The, the problem with the presentation of not only snook fishing, but any site casting, permit, bonefish, tarpon, uh, etc., is that not only is the cast sometimes fairly far, 40, 50, 60, 70 feet, but the fly is big, compared to fresh water, which that makes it harder. And the worst of all situations, the fish is moving. So you have a moving target that means the area of awareness in front of them, the area that you may want to put the fly, is also moving. Furthermore, you have to judge how high he is in the column. Is it right on the surface, pushing awake? You, if that's the case, the fly can ride right on the surface. Or in two feet of water, is he cruising right against the bottom? which means you have to lead them a few feet more to give time for the fly to sink. All of this is quite a, it's quite a, um, a menagerie of factors to come up with. I suggest uh, first that you practice with a fly on, and if you're in the grass, cut the hook off. Sacrifice a 2-0 fly, seducer, deceiver, bend back, whatever, so that first you practice with the fly on. Otherwise, you're not practicing. Second, don't use a ring. Don't get used to casting at what you see. Otherwise, you cast right between their eyes and you spook them. The human body is conditioned to hit what they throw at. So you must be conditioned to cast in front of what you're looking at, which is much harder. So what do I want you to do? Practice with what you make any way of making an artificial fish, how would that be? A piece of wood two, three feet long, and you have one side painted black, maybe that would be the tail, and one side, the one foot in front painted red, that would be the head of the fish, let's just say. So that you get used to putting that stick 40 feet, 50 feet away, and casting on the side that they eat, and putting the fly two feet in front, three feet in front roughly, and passing it by. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's, that is of the essence. What happens is that you're looking at the fish and force casting, and at the 11th hour on the last force cast, you take your eyes off the fish, and you move your eyesight forward two or three feet, and then you head that. That's what you actually do. Okay. But you've got to get used to doing that, and best to do it in the comfort of the lawn of your home uh, practicing with an eight-weight rod. If you're a trout fisherman, I used to a four-weight or a five-weight. Now you're using an eight-weight. Uh, practice with a leader at least the length of the rod. If you've got a nine-foot rod, I'd like to see you practice with a ten-foot leader. That would be good. Okay. Well, here's a question from Ryan McClash down in Bradenton, Florida. He's an experienced fly fisher, 
and he's caught some big snook on conventional tackle, but it seems that with a fly, he's just bringing in the little guys. And he has found that most of his biggest snook have come from around structure and wonders how you would recommend presenting your fly to, to these guys. Well, a first answer to that, uh, you, you can get down on that structure by using a fast-sinking line. Uh, with a current and mending and getting down 5 feet or 10 feet or 15 feet. But ultimately, if you're going to fly fish for big snook, you're going to have to hunt them in a different world. This is like the hunter who hunts with a 300 Weatherby and shoots a deer at 300 yards. That's great. But when you become a bow and arrow hunter, all of a sudden you're hunting in a different world, in a different way, not in the same place because you can't throw the arrow 300 feet. So... You can't fish in, the, in, in, in Kaksambas Pass or in Boca Grande Pass where you fish the live mullet and just throw a fly down there. It won't work as well. You've got to get in the flats and hunt for those fish when they come in that shallow water, a different hunting experience with the streamer flies and the things that we're talking about now. Um, that's, you're going to have to do that. And it's a completely different world. It's a lot of work. You got to get into pulling a boat, and, and, and if you're not doing that, someone's got to pull the boat, and you start hunting a completely different world. That if you've been fishing the passes with light bait, and I'm very familiar with that, you haven't done. And it's very exciting. You start hunting, and believe me, I've seen 30, 35 pound snook cruising in a foot and a half of water. Uh, I mean, you can see the dirty yellow fins uh, waving in the in the air as he comes by, and of course, uh, you, you know your knees are shaking. Um, you know, but it's a different world that going into the past where there are a bunch of people there and everybody's got a light bait down there. It's, you're hunting in a different world. And in my opinion, prejudice as it might be, a much beautiful world. And you're not with anybody around you then. But right. that's, what, that's what he's going to have to do. But, uh, Jesse Summers in Chesterfield, uh, Chesterfield Michigan, uh, asked the question about uh, shore versus boat and so forth. And I think you just kind of identified it, but, but fill in any blanks here for me. We've got shore fishing uh, without a boat uh, on, in the salt, right? Mm -hmm. um, we really didn't talk about it, but I assume you could fish that same piece of water from a boat in the salt inshore. Is that? Yes, the, the boat is just a matter of necessity. If you fish way back in the Everglades, there's no place you can drive a car to. I mean, right. not even within 30 miles of it. So you've got to run a boat. If it's only three or four miles, you can launch a canoe and pull it. I pull a canoe four miles many times and fly fish it. But Florida has many canals, certainly the Tamiami Trail Canal, in which thousands and tens of thousands of snook are caught um, on a fly rod from the car. I mean, not from now, the car, but right off the car. Yeah, the Tamiami is, runs right through Miami, doesn't it? Yes, it goes from Miami to Naples. Right. It was built around 1926 or so, and I fished it many, many years. I don't fish it hardly at all now, but I, through the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s, I fished it a lot. And people still catch snook and, and baby tarpon out of those canals. Um, there are the portion of the Tamiami Trail Canal that's on the west coast, not the one closest to Miami. And that part close to the west coast, all of those canals communicate to, to the Gulf, so you have brackish water. And you have baby tarpon, occasional redfish, no sea trout. It's too fresh for sea trout. Uh, occasional jack and an occasional ladyfish. But it's mainly a snook and baby tarpon world. 
but there are many other canals in Fort Lauderdale and all around Naples and um, that you can fish from shore and certainly the beaches too. Um, and at night, fishing the lights in the bridges, in the docks, etc., um, you can also fish from shore. But there's so much mangrove world out there that cannot be accessed by from shore regardless. You, you just need a boat. Uh, it doesn't need to be an expensive boat. A, a John boat with a 25 tiller, a light John boat 16 foot with a 25 tiller and, a, and an expensive push pole can do wonders. Mm-hmm. Wonders. So, so, but, and, and so when we talk about fishing for snook, there's really no excuse not to go because you can fish for them from, from the, the beach to the canals, to the bridges, to, yes. to from a canoe, to, I mean, it's, Absolutely. Uh, they're just about everywhere. Um, Absolutely, and, and almost year-round. When you see someone that tells you, well, the spring is the best time, well, I know the big snook are in the spring spawning, and if you're used to going in the passes with a live bait, sure, but during the summer and the fall, they're in the flats in 70 and uh, 90 to 70-degree temperature, and during the winter, they're way back. The guys that fish them only way back, say in the summer, I don't fish them in the summer. Well, you're just not fishing them where they are. They, they go way back in in the winter, comes out uh, in the summer, in between they, fish, they hunt the beaches during the mullet run. But my bottom line is you can fish them year-round. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, once you've hooked into one of these guys, I'm sure the, the techniques vary uh, depending on what habitat you're in, but if you've got a decent-sized snook that's bent on getting back into the mangroves, uh, do you try to muscle them out of there? Do you let them go and then hope that you can retrieve them? How no, you've you, you got to muscle them out. You can't just clear a line like a bonefish and then fight them uh, mm-hmm. because they'll get in the mangroves. Uh, the worst time to catch a big snook is fishing the mangroves during the higher stages of the tide because that's when he can swim way back. Some of the bigger snook I've caught <clears throat> have been on the low outgoing tide where the tide, the, almost all the mangroves are out of water, and while he, he cruises or, or he runs along the shoreline looking for debris and stumps and, and mangrove to go in, all the mangroves are out of the water, so he's almost in open water. But when you do hook him, as happens quite frequently, in water that he can dive and go in between all the mangrove roots and swim back. And remember, some of those islands go back in water several hundred yards so he he can go back. I've seen I've seen leader in ten, twenty, thirty feet of flyland go back before the flyland gets scraped and and cut off on a on a oyster bar and you lose snook leader and twenty feet of flyland. So you got to stop him, and that's the hardest thing. You're clearing line. You don't have him on the reel yet. You might have to fight him off the reel. I mean off the line a little bit. Um, before you can get them on the reel, because they're, they're like I said before, it's an alley fight, and you can't let him get in. You, there's no such thing as like, clear it, and maybe later we can do something. No, later he's way back there, and he may come out, but he'll come out through some other mangrove. He won't come out through the same ten or twelve mangrove shoots he went through. The chances would be remote. Yeah. Sure. So that's even a bigger problem. Uh, so no, you you do have to fight him hard uh, in that situation. Yes. Are there techniques that you can use maybe to draw them out of the mangroves sort of at high speed so you've got a chance to keep them away? Well, like one of the th- fly on the surface? Yeah, one of the things is you like like fighting any big fish low to the water 
and against pulling against the spine. If he's going to your right, you pull to your left. You don't want to pull in the same direction he's going. He's just swimming then. You don't want to pull high because you're not going to lift him off the water, so he feels almost no pressure at all. you got to go way down, down and dirty, as, as they call it here in Florida, and pull right against him. That's true for any fish, but in the particular case of a snook, since you're in a rush to try to get him out of the mangroves and keep him in open water. Now, sometimes you keep him out for a few seconds or a few minutes, and he desperately gets out into open water. Ah, then you let him run, clear the line, fight him lightly, move the boat into open water. But soon, believe me, soon he'll realize, uh-oh, this is not good. Almost always. And he'll turn around head back. Hopefully he's tired enough and you've gone all the way out and you're pulling against him that you'll stop him before he gets back again. A really big fish sometimes, even after a, long, a while of fighting, will finally get back in the mangroves and cut you off, which is very disheartening. Other times you'll stop him just before he gets to the mangroves, turn him around. Now he's too tired. The polar keeps pulling further and further away from the mangroves, and now he's very tired in open water, and he's landed. Well, that sounds like uh, the end of a, a good story there is that he's landed, right? I mean, <laughs> that, that's what we're all shooting for. Well, Chico, we're, we're out of time here, but I have one more question. I guess it's a twofold question before we, uh, uh, we move on to um, uh, our events calendar and, and the drawing for the gifts we have tonight. And that's, um, uh, and, well, first question, I guess, I know you're working on the Redfish book. Is there going to be a snook book someday? Probably not because a snook is so esoteric. They're so, it's so less universal. The redfish and the bonefish, called redfish, go from almost from Virginia to Mexico, to the beginning of Mexico. Uh, but this is such a small world that mm. uh, it reminds me a little bit of jazz music. Not many people know it. So... I don't think it would. It, I, I have a lot of clients that want me to write it real bad, but however, the market's if, not there. The, the market's yeah. not there. But I tell you what: if you look at my bonefish book, there's a chapter that explains very in detail how to cash permit because they belong there. How to cash the really big barracuda, etc. There's going to be a chapter on this book on how to cash the big black drum that inhabit the same world as a redfish. How to fly fish for the snook and how to fish for those baby tarpon that are also encountered in that world. Oh, and how to fish for the sea trout, the bigger sea trout, that are also encountered in the uh, frequent overlap anyway with the snook world. Now, you said this is in your new book? Yes. That these chapters will be in? Great. Yes, right. because they belong in that world. You know, they're right, brackish right. water. You, you catch them while you're snook fishing. Exactly. And vice Great, on. great. Well, that's something to look forward to. So we're looking out uh, maybe a year or so when we see that book? Yes, yes. Okay. By the time it's really out and everything, yeah. Right, right, right. Well, like I said, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up. But we, uh, I had so much more to say. I know, I know. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Um, when we return, we'll be drawing for a one-year subscription to Five Fusion Magazine and, and those tickets to the ISE events. So stay tuned and see if you win. Front Range Angler is a full-service fly shop located in Boulder, Colorado, provides premium tackle and comprehensive instruction and guide services to fly fishers across the country. In business for over 25 years and with a staff that averages 20 years of experience, they will give you the straight story on gear, places to fish, flies, and techniques. 
They publish a monthly newsletter that is one of the most informative and insightful electronic magazines in the industry. Find out more about this premier shop by logging on to their website, www.frontrangeanglers.com. That's frontrangeanglers.com. And on our global events calendar tonight, we see that the IGFA Hall of Fame in Dania, Florida, will be hosting the Florida Council May Conclave on Saturday, January 27th, beginning at 10 a.m. They have a terrific program, as well as raffle, prizes, and more, and the public is welcome. That's the FFF Florida Council Mini Conclave at the International Game Fish Association Hall of Fame on Saturday, January 27th, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the events calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find the link on our homepage in the section below Chico's section that says, What do you think of this show? Just click on that and then leave your comments. Well, now it's time to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, a premier fly fishing magazine, and two pairs of tickets to the ISC show. And um, the way we do it is it's a randomly selected from our registration database. If you haven't registered yet, then it's too late tonight, but make sure you do it for our next show because we give away a lot of nice gifts. So the lucky winner will contact you after the show uh, via email and get your specifics so you can receive your gifts. And so look, look for us there. Well, let's, uh, let's press the magic button here and uh, make a selection. This will be for the Fly Fusion magazine, one-year subscription. And we've got Trevor Smith in Tennessee. Trevor Smith won the Fly Fusion one-year subscription to Fly Fusion magazine. You like that? Congratulations, Trevor. And uh, now we've got two pairs of tickets to the ISE events, um, International Sportsman's Expositions. And our first one is Ted O'Hirock. O'Hirock. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but O-H-I-R-O-K. Ted O'Hirock, and he's in California. We've got, uh, they've got two shows in California, at Sacramento and San Mateo, so hopefully you can go to one of those. And then we've got, let's see here, Ryan Sager, uh, also from California, Ryan Sager. So uh, both of you have won two, uh, a pair of tickets each to the ISC shows, and uh, congratulations to both of you. Yeah, you'll like them. Well, Chico? I can't tell you how much we appreciate having you on the show with us tonight. Uh, as you said, uh, you not only had more to say, we had more questions to ask. We had <laughs> lots of questions about fly tying. We had uh, questions about redfish. We had uh, a whole host. Uh, perhaps we can have you back another time. Absolutely, absolutely. It was fun. But uh, you've sure sure given us a head start in, in going after snook, and uh, I, I'm with you. I, I just think that mangrove country is uh, is just so exciting. I, I, I just can't wait to get into it. Good. Well, thank you, too, uh, Chico, and um, uh, we'll, we'll definitely look forward to another visit. Well, on our next broadcast, which will be on January 3rd at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to interview Joe Butler, and the topic for that show will be the behemoths of the Great Lakes. Joe is well known for catching big, big brown trout. He's guided many fly fishers over the years to the Lake Ontario and Lake Erie tributaries to catch these awesome fish. What many people don't know is that during the fall spawning run of the browns, you can also fly fish for king salmon and steelhead. 
So listen to our next show to find out Joe's secrets about fly fishing for these coveted trophies. We'd like to thank the R.L. Winston Rod Company, Federation of Fly Fishers, International Sportsman's Expositions, Power Fibers, and Front Range Anglers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.